following message is recorded at City Light Church in Vicksburg, Mississippi. City Light Church exists to shine the light of Christ in our city and world through the transformed lives of His people. For more information on the church and its ministries, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org. I want to talk to you a little bit from the book of uh, Acts, chapter 16. Um, the book of Acts, chapter 16, we'll start in verses 11, and we're going to work kind of hit and miss through this text. We're going to pull certain things out that I think are important for this morning, for our discussion. Um, I want to talk to you about a core team. Now, some of you might be asking the question, what's a core team, All right? And, and core team is kind of church planning language. It's, it's modern church planning language. Core team, when you, when you get ready to plan a church, um, one of the things that they talk to you about is that you need to have a good core team. You need to have a good, good, solid 10, 20, whatever number of solid, just gung-ho, crazy people that would like to try crazy things like planning a church. You need to have at least 10 to 20 of those people in, in, in your core team if, if, if you want to see um, if, if, you, if you expect it to thrive in a certain way. And, and, and they always talk about certain dynamics, who needs to be in it, who, who doesn't need to be in it. Um, and, and, and what this does is this text kind of just throws all that out of the window. It just basically says, all right, I got a core team for you. This is your core team. It's going to talk about three people that start a church or that, that serve in starting a church, all right? The church at Philippi, there's three people, there's three individuals and these three individuals couldn't be any more different, and yet they are responsible by God's grace and used by God to advance the mission of God in the city of Philippi and to start this church. They're not the ideal core team as we would expect them to be, but they're the ideal core team for God, which is why this sermon is called the ideal core team. You ask, well, where is the tie-in to the ladies in this in, in, in this? core team that we're, or this discussion that we're having this morning. And, and the reality is, is that it's actually very much a, a, a message to ladies because out of the three people, two of them are women. And how God uses these women or how God, how God takes women from different sides of the track, so to speak, is really worth our time to ponder. The story picks up with the Apostle Paul um, who is arguably the greatest missionary and the greatest church planner that the world has ever known. And his team, his team of, that includes his protege, uh, Timothy, and another brother by the name of Silas that's, who's come along for the journey, and, and, another, and another brother who's actually the author of this book, the book of Acts, a man by the name of Luke. Together they have come to this city, in, uh, this city called Philippi, and they're looking to do God's work there. But what becomes apparent in the passage, verses 11 through 40, is that when it comes to living our lives to advance the mission of God and to do things like plant churches and do things like share the gospel, it requires God-appointed people. It requires good people in a core team, but it requires first and foremost the Spirit of God. It requires the Spirit of God to lead and guide those that are responsible for this work. 
the encounters with these three people that we're about to talk about in this passage, they may seem routine if we just read the passage, but if we read all of the stuff that comes before the passage, namely chapter 15, the latter part of chapter 15, and then also chapter 16, verses 1 through 10, what we find is that this is anything but ordinary. When we read the context of this passage that we're about to study, what we find is that it is anything but ordinary. Towards the end of chapter 15, for example, we see that even the people who make up the traveling party are now different. Initially, it wasn't Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. Initially, it was Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas had Silas, or Barnabas, or rather Barnabas had Mark, John Mark, who was the author of Mark, the gospel of Mark, and Paul had Silas as his close buddy. And they traveled together, and, and, and what happened in chapter 15 is that a conflict arose as to whether or not it was wise to take Mark. Mark had bowed out when they went to one city. He bowed out. And then the decision became, should we bring Mark Knowing that Mark had bowed out earlier, should we bring him along on, the, on, on this next journey that we're about to take as we go and visit the saints and encourage the saints? And so a split happened because they couldn't come to an agreement as to whether or not they should bring him or not. And so a split happened, and, and John, Mark, and Barnabas went their way, and Paul and Silas went their way. So Paul and Silas set out to do what they intended to do, but by, the, but by chapter 16, verse 6, we also learn that the purpose has changed. When they initially started, they initially started in chapter 15 with the purpose to go into all of the places that they had already been and to encourage the churches that had been established since they traveled there last. However, they complete that first part. And then they expand the scope of the mission. So now the mission has changed. Instead of just going from church to church that's already been established to encourage the people, now they're going to plant new churches in places that they've never been, places that they've never traveled and evangelized at this point. We also learned that they try to start a gospel work in two other regions before they get to Philippi. So they try to get to two other places. Verse 6 of chapter 16, look there with me. It says this, they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Magia, or Magia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So two times they tried to go to a place, and did you hear that? The Spirit did not allow them to go. They were told no twice by the Spirit to get to this divine yes by the Spirit in Philippi. The Lord can say no to what appears to be the best choices that you got on the table. You can think it's a great choice and the Lord can be saying no. Does that make sense? He knows the complete outcome, so while you're looking from a partial window and seeing only a limited view, God is seeing the whole scope of things. And so from your limited view, it may seem like a great idea, it may seem like a great choice, but, for God, but from God's infinite view, he knows what's best. That's why it's important that we study his word to understand his wisdom and decision-making. It's important that we seek his guidance, seek the people around us that are walking with God so that we can gain from their wisdom. 
But also pray, pray for his direction, pray for his ordering of your steps. Because there's some things that the Bible will not give you clear-cut answers to, and there's sometimes your, and there, be, and there will be some times where your friends don't know. And so you're going to need God to simply order your steps. The old folks used to say, close the doors that no man can open, open the doors that no man can close. In other words, if I'm off path, just put me back on. I don't know it. I'm trying my best. I don't know where I'm going. If I'm off, just put me back on, Lord. Order my steps. And then you also have to remain sensitive to the Spirit's prompting. Sometimes the Spirit is moving you, prompting you. Sometimes the Spirit brings people in your life that encourage you with the word that you know is is biblically aligned. Sometimes the Spirit causes causes people to drop out of your circle. Sometimes the Spirit brings people into your circle. If we're doing that, if we're doing those things, we have a much better chance of walking in accordance to God's plan for our lives, even if those don't seem, those plans don't seem as obvious at first. So they receive these two no's, and, and, and then Paul gets a vision in verse 9. He gets a vision, a man from a man of Macedonia, which is a region, the region that Philippi is in. Paul gets a, vi- a vision from a man of Macedonia. He's standing there in front of Paul, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. So after the vision, they talk about it, they reason about it, and they say, okay, well, maybe God closed those other doors because he's sending us here. And so they go. Does that make sense? So verse 11 They get to Philippi. This is a, Philippi is a booming seaport community. Gold mines are on the outskirts of Philippi, so there's a lot of prominent wealth. There's good minerals in the mountaintops of Philippi. There's good fertile soil, so the agriculture is healthy. So Philippi is a prominent city. One of, the, one of the big cities, one of the prominent cities in Macedonia. As a matter of fact, Philippi is called Little Rome by some. Because, because of its prominence and its opportunities for wealth and, and because they set up shop to mimic Rome, the Roman Empire did in Philippi. So this place was an ideal place for living. And Paul lands with the immediate desire. He comes in and the first thing that he does, which is always the first thing that he does, is he goes and he looks for the synagogue. Well, Philippi doesn't have one because Paul wants to go and find the synagogue so he can share the gospel. Well, Philippi doesn't have one. They have a place of prayer on the outside of the city because to practice on the inside of the city causes too much of a ruckus. And so Paul goes to the outside of the city to find this place of prayer. And in this place of prayer, he meets a group of women. It's interesting that there's no men at this place of prayer. There's only women here. But Paul meets this group of women, and he meets a woman by the name of Lydia. Lydia. Verse 14, one who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. Now, a few words about Lydia. She is a businesswoman. She's a businesswoman. Lydia's hometown, Thyatira, was known as a wealthy but small city. She was a seller of 
purple goods. Now, that might not mean anything to y'all, right? You might be like, okay, what's the big deal about purple goods? But it was considered a color of royalty, and the dye that she used was a very particular dye, and thus it was expensive. She sold these purple goods. It was without question the material that she sold was expensive material. Does that make sense? Just hearing, you say, hearing, you, hearing us say purple might not mean anything to us, but let's just consider Lydia kind of like a seller of Michael Kors, right? She's just going around and selling Michael Kors merchandise. So if you, if you saw Lydia kind of selling Michael Kors merchandise, you'd be like, man, Lydia must have a little bank, right? She got a little money. And this, and this, and this is Lydia. This is who she is. She also appears to have a home big enough for housing guests and and demonstrating hospitality because it appears that this is where the early church starts. The church of Philippians starts in Lydia's house. This is a woman with significant means. And we would probably say that it's a woman with a career outside of the house, but she's also a very God-fearing woman. Matter of fact, the ESV renders it that she was a worshiper of God. That's what it says in verse 14, a worshiper of God. She's a God-fearer. The idea being that she had great reverence for the Jewish God, even though she wasn't necessarily subscribing to all of the Jewish law. She wasn't a proselyte. She didn't fall in completely with all the Jewish law and customs and festivals, but she did admire and had great fondness and great honor and reverence for their God the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. So she's wealthy, she's religious, she's career-minded, and most importantly, she's a candidate for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the Bible says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul in verse 14. And after she was baptized and her husband as well, I'm sorry, her household was well, she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. In other words, she urged and urged and urged until we gave in and said, okay, okay, we will come and we will stay and we will rest at your house. Now notice a couple of, a couple of things that Paul and Silas and Timothy and Mark that they don't do when they show up amongst these group of women. They don't flee as a result of seeing these women only as temptations to avoid, right? They don't see these group of women gathered in prayer and be like, oh, no, we can't talk to those folks. They don't see them as temptations to avoid. Yes, we should all guard against our own soul's deceitful treachery and its ability to engage the opposite sex wrongly, but there is an extreme that we can journey to that treats all women as nothing but temptations. They are not. Seeing them in such a way is no better than seeing all men as doggish. Are you tracking with that? Neither is helpful. However, notice that Paul and the team don't see these women as objects for their own gratification either. So they don't see them only as uh, temptresses, but they don't see them as objects of gratification either. They don't objectify them as so many men both in and outside of the church, both in this time and in, in that time, do merely reduce these women to their facial features and their bodily features. They don't do that. They engage these women as sisters. They engage these women as fellow image bearers of God. They see them as God sees them, and they share the message that carries the power to transform them from being just merely merely women acquaintances to sisters in the gospel. And as a result, God moves on the first recorded soul in Europe, and that soul is by the name of Lydia. Tracking with that? 
Notice how God moves in a way that we least expect. Paul is called to Macedonia through a vision. Who does he get that vision from? A man from Macedonia that says, come to Macedonia and help us. And Paul goes to Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi, and he goes to the place of prayer. And he, he where, where's the brother? Where, where is he? Where is he? I saw him in my vision. Does that make sense? No, no brothers in sight. Here's a woman. Completely and totally not what the vision was conveying to Paul. And yet, there's God's way of commissioning this work in Philippi right there. Sometimes we can go to a place confident we know exactly how God is going to work everything out until we get there and we actually see what he's doing. But lastly, notice the manner in which she is saved. The Bible says that the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. God moves on the hearts of men and women to turn their hearts towards him. Paul saw a similar effect in Antioch in chapter 13 of Acts. In chapter 13 of Acts, when he had preached the gospel, the Bible says, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the Lord, the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. The same thing happened there. The hearts of the people were turned by God to receive the message of God. Jesus said in John chapter 6, verse 44, that no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, turns their heart towards me. No bells, no whistles in this message. He's just hanging out with a group of women on the outside of Philippi, chatting it up, sharing the gospel. And and God, even though there's no bells, there's no whistles, there's no fire show, there's no fireworks, even though there's none of that, God still moves in power and turns this woman's heart back towards him. Paul said that in the second chapter of 1 Corinthians, that when he came, that when he came, he brought, he came rather to, 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 to Corinth, that he did not come excellency of words, lofty speech and wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I brought the gospel. Didn't bring, I didn't bring bells and whistles. I brought the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ that saves. And I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. In other words, I wasn't the most eloquent guy out there, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. When I spoke, something happened, but it didn't happen because I was a, necessarily a great speaker. It happened because God was at work in the words. And that's what happened to Lydia. That God was at work in the words that Paul spoke. God opened her heart to respond to those words. Maybe you're Lydia. Maybe you are somewhat religious. Maybe you are career woman, career driven. God can turn your heart back to him. And you can be a part of his work. Lydia became the first honorary member or the first official member, rather, of Greater Philippi Missionary Baptist Church. (laughs) That's what we'll call it this morning. Call it something else tomorrow. 
So while God oftentimes moves like this, we see, uh, moves like what we see with Lydia, he doesn't always move like that. So, so look at verse 16. It says, as we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having greatly annoyed uh, ha- having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Maybe we, maybe we are at a missionary Baptist church. They treat me like, one of, like I'm in the old school. They brought me, brought me some paper towel up here to wipe the sweat of my brow off my face. <laughs> Amen. Sometimes instead of, though, demonstrating his transforming power by by taking a bright and an upper class and a religious, career-minded woman and transforming transforming her heart just through a mild conversation, sometimes God takes a poor, demonically possessed, slave, young Greek girl and shows power that is evident for all the eyes to see. Paul and the brothers seemed to run into this girl very close to the same place that they met Lydia. They were, on back, they were back on their way to the place of prayer. And they run into this girl. And this girl and this woman couldn't be any more different, right? Totally different. One wealthy and the other a slave. One helpful, insisting that the brothers come to her home to rest and recover, and the other helpless, bound by demonic activity and unable to change her condition in any way. It's outside of her control. This woman is going around, and, and it's believed that she was, she was predicting uh, or, 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 or prophesizing that, that the word spirit is actually, is actually translated python. And python was a guardian, or the, uh, he guarded the temple of Apollos. A pythoness was one who made clairvoyant predictions and uttered words and all sorts of strange voices, right? So she had this kind of demonic thing going on as she walked about, telling fortunes to the locals and making her owners a lot of money. Does that make sense? So take note that this young lady is being used by the devil and being used by these men who are profiting off of her. She's bound twice. This may not sound all that relevant for everyday conversation or everyday occurrences in our lives, but the devil is using other methods of exploitation today. And there are men lining up more than happy to take advantage of those methods on sisters created in God's image and likeness. As men look to gratify themselves, they're driven to exploit women created in the image and the likeness of God, but maybe trapped in sin and trapped in weakness. Perhaps it's sexual promiscuity due to a need to feel loved or a sexual addiction or addiction to attention. Perhaps it's a lack of self-worth due to a lack of awareness that they are fearfully and wonderfully made, as God said. There was a documentary that was released on Netflix called Liberated recently where it talks about the hookup culture in today's society in high school and college and the toxic impacts that it's having on our society and, and on our children and on our young adults. It's a big problem. One of the ladies that, that actually is a part of the council that created the documentary, she was once traf- uh, trafficked as an 18-year-old by her own boyfriend for six months. 
She talked about, she talked about that, that, that hookup culture is grooming college-age women and makes them easy targets for traffickers, for exploiters. It says traffickers will specifically target girls who are actively involved or desensitized to the hookup culture. The lure is you're doing it anyway, so why not make a little money while you're doing it? But he tricks her to continue to do something she's already doing with the carrot that she will be able to buy her home someday. Of course, she never gets the home because he takes all the money, end quote. Hookup culture was the world's response to the exploitive nature that has always been cultivated amongst men. And it was called being macho, right? The girls were always given shame for being hyperactive sexually. The men were always given kudos for being hyperactive sexually. And hookup culture is the response to that. Basically, it says, okay, instead of me just sitting around being shamed, I'm just going to embrace it, and I'm going to stand in pride, and I'm just going to accept being just as sexually active as the man and the woman and the man, and they're both just happy to be sexually active. But guess what? It doesn't work that way, does it? Just because you decide to own exploitation don't mean the exploitation is going to stop. Women responded by seeking to live just as shamelessly, shamelessly as the men do in hopes that if we both live shamelessly, exploitation will cease. And that did not happen. But God says the answer isn't given to us in the culture. The answer is to be set free from the culture. The answer is to be given the kind of power that brings deliverance from the bondage that the culture has defined as freedom. To step away from the exploitation, not to embrace it. Notice that this demonic girl is saying all the right things about these men. She's following these men, and she and she as she follows these men, she's <laughs> she's saying these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She is saying all the right things about these men, and yet she's saying the right things under the wrong pretense. The right things under the wrong pretense is still wrong no matter how right it sounds. You see, if they accepted her when she spoke rightly about, about them without denouncing her bondage and her exploitation, then they would end up attaching Christ and the gospel of Christ to this institution of exploitation. Do you understand that? Does that make sense? We've seen this through the years, right? Where preachers, rather than denouncing the exploitation of our sisters, co-opted by saying things like boys will be boys, men will be men. See, there's an opportunity to step into that and speak to the exploitation the way it should be spoken to, but instead we just kind of lean in and we say, well, you know, it's all the same, men, you know, just men doing stuff. Christian men, we co-op exploitation by reducing our sisters to bodies to be objectified. There was one recent stir-up just in, just, just in the past week where a highly respected preacher's old sermon resurfaced to the forefront because of a controversial statement that he made in the sermon. The article details an illustration where, where, where he described a scene in which a very attractive young co-ed who was not more than about 16, but let me say, she was nice, end quote, was oogled by a young man who was promptly scolded by his mother. And the preacher goes on to say that he defended the young man. Leave that boy alone. He's just been biblical. That's what it says right here. God built her and brought her to Adam. And he said that drawing laughter and applause from the audience. Do you hear what's happening there? We're co-opting exploitation and objectification rather than speaking to it. 
Now, this isn't some goofball huckster preacher. This is a very well-respected, quality, theologically sound preacher. But objectification and exploitation is in the air that we breathe as a culture. It cannot be. It should not be. And it must not be amongst us. Does that make sense? We must fight the urge to overlook or participate in the objectification of our sisters who are created in the image and likeness of God, the exploitation of our sisters who are created in the image and likeness of God. In the name of Jesus, in the power, in the power of, his, of his spirit, we must fight the temptation to participate in it, stand against it, speak up for them. In this passage, Paul rejects the subtle offer that this sister is offering him by coming over there and saying, yes, these guys are servants of the Most High God. He rejects that offer that that she's giving him to co-opt into this institution. He stands back and he says, no, 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 devil, you get out of her. Are you tracking with that? Maybe this, is, maybe this is us. Maybe this is, maybe, maybe, maybe this is you. Maybe you're this young girl that's bound in whatever sin. Maybe you're not a young girl. Maybe you're a young man that's bound in whatever sin. I want you to notice the power on display in God, that Paul spoke a word, and in that word, she was set free. That same God that set that young girl free, that young slave girl free, is the same God who's alive today to set you free. So you have this wealthy, powerful, career-minded woman who is saved over a conversation about Jesus. And then you have this poor, exploited, and possessed saved girl who is set free from spiritual bondage. And now, listen to me, listen to me, now they're going to the same church. They're going to the same church, which leads us to the last person for this morning. In verses 19 through 34, what we find is that Paul and Silas get in trouble. They get in trouble. They're thrown in jail, all right? Get this, get this. They're thrown in jail for casting out the devil in this girl. You say, well, how how does that happen? I thought that was a good thing. How did they get thrown in jail for casting out the devil in this girl? They're thrown in jail because they literally mess up the economy and the economic engine of the owners of this girl. You understand? See, they were making money off this girl. They were exploiting this girl. Letting this poor girl run around and give, give lying prophecies and, and, and maybe some, some even true prophecies, but influenced by demonic activity. And they were just cashing in, exploiting her for everything they could, making money off of her. And now Paul comes along and speaks the word of God to her. And now, she's, and now this devil has been cast out of her. That messes up their money. And so they go to the, they go to the authorities and they, and they, they say that the owners, they, they saw that their hope of gain was gone in verse 19. They seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought, to, brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They're messing up our money. 
They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Now notice something here. Notice what's happening. They mess up the economy, okay? They start messing with the economy of the culture, of the city, and injustice ensues. We learn later that Paul says, wait a second, what are y'all doing? Y'all didn't even give us a trial. We're Roman citizens. And they say, let them loose. Get them out of here and let's keep it quiet. And Paul says, no, 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 no. Y'all, no, we're going to talk about this outside, right? We need, we need to talk about this in the public, in the open. I want everybody to see this injustice that took place amongst us. But notice when the economy is being ruptured or being disrupted, that's when the room for injustice came in. When the exploitation has to cease, that's when the injustice came. This should obviously surprise no one because if there is any economic engine in this world that people will cling to and hold to, it's exploitation. We will exploit, we run billion-dollar industries on exploitation. And when people start muddying, in, muddying those waters and disrupting those institutions, people get upset. And so they throw Paul and Silas in jail. And Paul and Silas, while they're in jail, they meet the jailer. Now, the jailer isn't like the poor girl. The poor slave girl that's demonically possessed. Jailer isn't like Lydia, the wealthy Michael Core dealer. Jailer's probably just a regular guy. Regular guy, just trying to get a job done, right? He's not, he's not necessarily benefiting from the system. He's not necessarily being exploited, from the, uh, exploited by the system. He's just trying to enforce it. Hey, they won't, hey, they won't, what, what do they do? I don't care. They want me to put them in jail, in jail they go. Right? Just trying to keep quiet, get my check, go home to my family. That's the, that's the jailer. So religiously, we don't hear anything about his faith. Possibly, obviously, we can consider, he might not be demon-possessed, but he might not be overly religious either. Yet, just like Lydia and just like the slave girl, this jailer is in need of a savior, and Jesus visits this jailer. Jesus' demonstration of power increases with each, each experience or each encounter. First, there's this woman that he just has a conversation with through Paul, and she gets saved. Next is this young girl, slave girl, who's demonically possessed, and the devil's casted out of her. Now this jailer is sitting in a jail cell or sitting in, sitting in this prison, hanging out, waiting on, waiting on his, uh, his shift to end, so to speak, and Paul and Silas, at the midnight hour, start singing songs and praises to God. What in the world is going on? Who is singing Amazing Grace in here? And they're singing loud. And, and as they begin to sing, the Bible says there's an earthquake. And that they were bound in stocks and bonds. To, they were locked in to the point where they could not move. Sitting, sitting down, feet out locked in, could not move, and all of a sudden, those bonds break. And everybody's set free. Now, the jailer is a law-abiding man. 
he knows that if Paul and Silas and all the prisoners escape, that he's going to get a harsh punishment. He's going to suffer to death. And so he decides that he's just going to kill himself, make it go quick. But Paul and Silas stop him. The grace and the mercy at work, God moving through them, instead of them seeking their own salvation, they actually seek this man. Instead of them breaking towards freedom, immediately they stop and they save this man's life. And it's this man, after, after this experience, he says in verse 30, he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all who were in his house. Three people, three totally different people, three totally different means of getting to those people and reaching those people and touching those people, and yet the same result, that they're all saved. What do we take from this? Number one, we take that everybody needs saving. Doesn't matter what side of the fence that you're sitting on. Doesn't matter whether you're wealthy or poor doesn't matter whether you're demonically possessed or you're religiously affiliated. doesn't matter whether you're woman or man. doesn't matter what political side that you lean on, whether you're left wing or right wing. Everybody needs saving. But the good news is that Jesus saves everybody. That Galatians chapter 3 tells us in Christ, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, there's neither Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, or female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's heirs, Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. That you don't have to be on this side of the street or that side of the street. You don't have to have this amount of money or that amount of money. That God can save, and that God will save to the uttermost if you simply call on him by faith and repentance. If you turn to him and turn away from the old, if you trust him with your life, it doesn't matter what streets you live on, he'll save. But then the last thing that you can take from this is that, is that the church must be a place where all of these different people can not only coexist, but also thrive together. It must be a place where, where the wealthy and the poor and the middle class can find a home. It must be a place where those who have benefited from the culture and those that have suffered as a result of the culture and those who are just simply enforcing the culture systems can come together and seek a better way, a Christ-exalting way for the common good of all. That's what the church has to be. If the church is a place where there's only certain people that are welcome, then we are not the church because that is not how Jesus is moving in our world. He is moving to touch every single person in our world, every type of person, rather, in our world, from every background in our world. And if we are in a place that when those people are touched, they can come to, then we aren't operating like God's house. 
Last verse says that they went out of the prison, Paul and Silas and the jailer. They visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and they they departed. So we begin or we end where we begin. Lydia. Now she has a house church. Philippi has established their church. And they got a core team. A poor woman, rich woman, and a jailer who's just sitting in the middle. <laughs> Paul and Timothy and Silas and Mark and Luke, rather, they never, would, they never envisioned that in chapter 15. And sometimes we don't know where God is taking us, do we? <laughs> we don't know where God is taking city light. I mean, come on, you think I know? We don't know where God is taking city light. We prep, we pray, and we pursue his will. But we're operating with flashlights, folks, not spotlights. God's revealing this thing as we walk. But I'm confident that just like Paul, when he writes to Philippians in the the book of Philippians, he writes to them 10 years later to that church. I'm confident that like him, we'll be able to say, say similar things about us. As he writes to them in closing, I say this. As he writes to them, he says, I thank God in all my remembrance for you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. For, I'm sorry. And I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for, for, you, all, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel, listen, from the first day until now. And I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you will bring it to the completion of the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. I can't help but think that as he wrote that, he talked about how they had partnership with him from the first day. I can't help but think that he was talking to the jailer. And he was talking to Lydia. And he was talking to that slave girl who from the first day had established partnership with Paul. And he said that, hey, God will complete this work. He will finish what he started in you. In 15, 20 years from now, we don't know if we'll be called City Light Church, but what we do know is that every seed that he's planted through City Light Church and everyone that has taken root and sprouted and became a soul saved unto grace, that he will finish that work in you. Amen. Let's pray. God, we love you and thank you so much for your grace and mercy towards us, and we ask and pray that you would just continue to help us be faithful that you would strengthen us, Lord God, to be, to be, a, to be a, 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 a fellowship of people that no matter what side of the street a person comes from, they can come in and they can find a family that will embrace them, that will encourage them in the gospel, that will point them, Lord God, continuously to Jesus Christ, and that will spur them on to good works. Father, we love you, we thank you, and we give you all the praise, glory, and honor in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. This message was brought to you by the family and friends of City Light Church. 
for church worship times, directions, support opportunities, or other ministry information, please visit www.citylightvicksburg.org.